0: So, my name is Jason. I'm one of the the pastors here at ECC, um, if we haven't met. And I think it's safe to say that summer is finally coming. Uh, Spring has officially sprung, and and summer might happen. If the forecast is actually true, tomorrow is supposed to be the start of some really, really gorgeous weather. And part of what excites me about that is one of my very favorite places to be, kind of my happy place in the world, is the screen porch that's next to the back of our house. It's not fancy. It was put on in the 80s. You know, it's got kind of like astroturf green carpet. It's not fancy. But I love just hanging out there on like long summer nights and have friends over. One of my one of my family's favorite things to do is have another family over and eat you know, eat out on the porch and then the kids play in the backyard and we have a bonfire and s'mores and all that stuff. It's the reason we live in Minnesota, is for evenings like that spent just hanging out on a long summer night. And I think that really is my happy place. but I think it also speaks to the fact that we as humans are wired For community, we're built with a desire, an innate desire, to be in community with other people. And eating together is one of those kind of almost magical ways that we experience it by design, by God's design. Well, today we are continuing in the series that we call Bless. It's a series that's being done by Covenant Churches all over the nation, intentionally looking at how do we take the story of Jesus and make it a reality in the lives of our friends and neighbors by truly and significantly blessing them in the way that we interact and love them. And we've taken the missional practices of Jesus, the key practices that we see modeled in the life of Jesus, and we've turned it into this acronym, the Covenant Church turned into this acronym, BLESS, B-L-E-S-S. And at first blush, that sounds almost corny or really churchy, bless, like, God bless you, or, or something like that. But the reality is, of course, that in Genesis 12, God called Abraham and said, I am going to bless you so richly that you, your life and your legacy will be a blessing to the whole world. And that is the same mission that we are on, that we, that we aren't simply blessed to be recipients of blessing, but that we would actually be dispensers of God's blessing into this world. The first uh, letter in the acronym, of course, was B, begin with prayer. And, And the idea there was to literally write down three to five names of people that are in your spheres of influence, people who don't know Jesus, friends and neighbors and classmates and co-workers, that you would write down their names and then intentionally pray for them daily, that God would give you opportunities to share your story, that God would somehow be orchestrating in them a desire to come to know Christ and praying for them daily. And then week two was Caitlin last week. She did a great job talking about how do we listen with care in a world where listening happens so poorly and so irregularly. How do we become a people that are known for really genuinely listening well and not simply assuming the needs of other people, but actually listening to the hearts and the needs of the people around us? And today's service is brought to us by the letter E. And I'm sure you've guessed that that is, of course, about eating. Together, and I don't think it's a coincidence that Chris assigned me uh, for eating. It's a cruel, uh, cruel stereotype. I think typecasting. (laughs) But it's funny. Think with me on this. You know, when you think about the ministry of Jesus, when you when, when you ask the question, "What did Jesus do in his ministry on Earth?" Oftentimes, we think of the miracles, we think of the teaching, we think of the healings, we think of walking on water, we think of dying on the cross. But less frequently do we think about the question of how central eating was to the ministry of Jesus and how how eating actually played a part of how Jesus saved the world. So many of the stories of Jesus, for instance, uh, the stories of teaching and healing and doing miracles happen in the context of meals, happen in the context of festivals and ceremonies and on hillsides and in upper rooms around meals. At wedding feasts, he turned water into wine. On a hillside, he miraculously fed 5,000. His last instruction to his disciples at the end of the book of John, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago, were given over a Passover meal. When, when Peter denied Jesus three times, it was at a breakfast that Jesus cooked for them that Jesus restored Peter and recommissioned Peter back into ministry. Food was central to the ministry of Jesus. The primary sacrament that Jesus gave to us as a way of remembering him is a meal. He gave us a bread and a cup, and he said, do this. Eat together in remembrance of me. Food was central to Jesus. One of the stories, one of the many stories in the Gospels of Jesus interacting over food comes from the book of Matthew. And it's Matthew talking about his own encounter with Jesus. Let's read together from Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners." So Jesus is walking along one day, and he comes across this tax collector, Matthew, working at his tax-collecting booth, sort of his office by the side of the road. And he turns to Matthew, and he says these two life-changing words, Follow me. And Matthew does. And as we've talked about many times in here, for in this ancient uh, Near Eastern world, the tax collector to Jews was an absolute scum of the earth. They were a sellout. They basically sold out their their birthright. They had turned against their nation and against their own people, and were now working for Rome. They had turned against God, their nation, and their people. In fact, to demonstrate that tax collectors were scum, the Jewish people actually excommunicated them from the synagogue, which means not only could they not worship with the other Jews, but they couldn't participate in any of the festivals, the ceremonies, really any of the community life of Jewish culture. They were a people who had no home. They were a hated people who didn't fit in with Rome and they were kicked out of Jewish life. And so their only community that was left for them was an outcast community. Plus to get their salary, to get paid at all, they didn't get paid by Rome. Essentially, they had to gouge the Jewish people. They overcharged them and took whatever money they could and that is actually what they then lived on and lived on typically very well. And so they were just hated by everyone. And so for Jesus to choose one of them, a tax collector, a most hated, a most despised among the people, to be one of his disciples was a shocker. But notice the first thing that Jesus does when he chooses Matthew, when he invites Matthew into this. He doesn't set up Matthew into a discipleship program where he can memorize scripture and learn basic doctrines and start to put to practice these things. The first thing he does is, is he eats with Matthew. And look who else is at that table, at that dinner even more tax collectors, along with this whole group of people referred to simply as sinners. I think it's worth noting that here, sinners does not mean that, that imply that somehow there are sinners and there are people who aren't sinners. Rather, it was a, a cultural meaning, it was a broad category of people who were irreligious, people who were rejected by the church, who, were, who had rejected Jewish customs. And so you had tax collectors, and you had prostitutes, and you had outcasts, and, and lepers, and these people who were simply not welcome within the established Jewish community, and they were simply called sinners. So here's Jesus, this esteemed rabbi, this teacher, and he's among the most despised and looked down people, sort of a veritable who's who of the socially unacceptable. And so to the religious leaders, this was disturbing, this was shocking, this was inappropriate and scandalous. And I think for us to understand that, we have to understand that eating in that culture was so much more significant, so much more central to life than it is for us today. I'm not sure as, as people who now like eat in the car on the way to soccer practice, we really understand the significance of, of how central eating together was in their culture. And I don't just mean like in a physically sustaining way. Eating with someone was a statement that you wanted to be associated with them. Eating with someone was a way of showing that you valued them, that they had worth to you, that they were your people. Who you ate with was a statement of who you loved, who you cared about, and considered part of your social class. So for Jesus to do this communicated a tremendous amount to be eating with them by doing this mundane daily task of eating, but doing it at Matthew's house and with his socially outcast friends, Jesus communicated a tremendous amount. So of course, the Pharisees, the religious elite, were super offended by Jesus eating at this house. And so they asked the the disciples of Jesus sort of to undermine Jesus. Why does your teacher eat with the scum, with the sinners and the outcasts? And Jesus overhears them. And he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I think, again, it's worth noting that Jesus is not somehow saying that the Pharisees are the healthy and that the people that he's eating with are are the scum and they're they're the sick and that they're the one who needs the, the doctor. In fact, I think perhaps it's the other way around. He's saying that he's on a mission and that the Pharisees, the very people who should get this, the people who were learned, who had studied Scripture back and forward, didn't get it. And so when he says to them, go and learn what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's quoting the Old Testament to them, which they should have known. And he's saying, it's not the the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick, and you're supposed to be the doctors. You should know better. Either you don't get this or you're simply ignoring it and not living it out. And so I am here. I am among those who need to be made well. These were words that God had spoken to his people who had become meticulous about performing all these religious rituals while at the same time neglecting the poor, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the outcast, So Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisees are the righteous or the healthy. He's saying, you guys need to live out that which you know, the stuff that you're so well known for having memorized, and yet you live out so little. And this whole incident of of Pharisees and Jesus having kind of a dust-up, a kerfuffle isn't unique to this story in Scripture. In fact, throughout the Gospel stories, you see the Pharisees up in arms and agitated at who Jesus is choosing to eat with. For instance, in the book of Luke, Jesus says this from Luke 7, the Son of Man, and that's Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself in the Gospels, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Jesus wasn't a drunk, Jesus wasn't a glutton, but he so often was seen eating with people that were, that he was accused of it. What we have to see in Jesus' life is that eating was not just something he did because people got to eat. Eating was absolutely central, integral to his mission of reaching and restoring the world. There's a place to write this in your notes. Jesus was a missional eater. I love that phrase. I mean, eating together may not have the same significance today for us that it did in that culture, but yet it is is still how we are fundamentally wired. We may be ignoring it as a culture when we eat in the car, but there's still something fundamental that happens when we eat together, when we share a meal together. It's still a great way to form and build and nurture relationships. And if we become missional eaters like Jesus was We can take this everyday thing that we do and turn it into those divine appointments that that Caitlin talked about last week, where God is present and God is working and God is speaking and drawing people to himself and using us in the process. We build relationships with people where we live and where we work that go beyond small talk and occasional conversation to eating and breaking bread and talking about the real matters of life, and it can change the world. Alan Hirsch and Lance Ford, in in their book, Right here, right now, everyday mission for everyday people say it like this. Sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. If every Christian household regularly invited a stranger or a poor person into their home for a meal once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. Change the world by eating. Best mission trip ever. (laughs) But seriously, if what they're saying is true, then imagine what would happen if all of us in this room began to engage, to see our homes, to see our dinner tables, to see the things that we have been so richly blessed with as an opportunity to invite others to come and experience God with us to come and experience what it is to break bread and to share life on a real level. If we're going to bless the world, we've got to eat with the world. And I know that some of you are probably saying, well, it's easy for you to say you're a professional Christian. <laughs> but it's not like that in our house. And I think that that's fair. It's, it's not that simple. I think we all have sort of this list of buts. And, and I put that in your notes, um, and it sounded funny when I said it in the first service, and so it doesn't sound any more appropriate now. But these buts, these, these things that we qualify, I'd love to but. And the first one of those is, but I don't have time. I think most of us can barely find time to eat meals with our own families, right? I consider not eating in the car a big win at this point. So I, I do get it. Finding time to eat with people can seem like a practical impossibility, But what if if maybe this call of Jesus, this picture of the mission of Jesus was the thing that was the tipping point that finally got us to understand that we need to perhaps reorganize our lives, that perhaps we need to somehow make a priority of actually being in these sort of healthy patterns, because we can't bless the world in the way that Jesus did if we don't. Missional eating can't be just one more thing that we cram into our already overfilled lives. Instead, it needs to actually become a part of the regular, healthy rhythms of our lives. We just need to be willing to actually have regular, healthy rhythms in our lives. That's the first step. Another, I think, big but would be, but I wouldn't know what to say, or I don't want to make somebody feel uncomfortable, or I don't want to be uncomfortable. And I get that. I know Caitlin talked about it last week. Some of us are are wired as extroverts. I am super extroverted. My favorite thing is to introduce myself to people I don't know and have conversations with them. It drives my kids crazy. And not all of us are like that. But I, I think part of what we have to look at in this is to say, I don't think that our temperament and our wiring necessarily gets to set the pace on this. I think that all of us are called into this mission. And it is empowered by God. It is called upon to God, by God, to us. And well, God will give all of us the ability to do that. God is present in those conversations, equipping them and giving us the words to say if we're willing to step out in faith and act and invite. But go beyond the surface. I realize there's all sorts of other kind of potential buts this morning about missional eating thing, but I don't like to have people in my home, or, but I can't cook, or, but I don't have time to clean up this place so it's fit for guests and cook some kind of fancy meal. And I think there's a rebut to all of those for instance, I don't, have, I don't like having people in my home. Great, then eat out. Uh, but I can't cook. Then carry in. People deliver food to your home now. <laughs> but I don't want to have to do the cleanup. Uh, but I don't want to do the cleanup after or fix a nice meal. That's why God made pizza and paper plates. This doesn't have to be fancy. I was talking with somebody after the service, and they said specifically summer is a time she doesn't cook, he doesn't cook. And so summers the time, they know they can have people over to the house because all they have to do is grill some burgers, and that's socially acceptable in Minnesota. That's a win. That's true for all of us. There's a place to write this in your notes. What's your butt? What's the thing that came to mind as soon as you started talking about this idea of inviting people into your home? I think for me, it's probably the clutter. This isn't in my notes. My wife's not here. <laughs> But the idea of having to get our house ready and organized and cleaned up in order for guests to come in and what that would say about us, the way that we look in that is something that is a but for me. And summer offers us the opportunity to have people to our home without being in our home. I'll move on. What's your but? And I'm not even saying you have to do anything necessarily about it, but at least acknowledge that it came to mind. Write it down and acknowledge that that is a barrier that exists for you in inviting people into your home. Inviting people to eat with you. And then think about it. Pray about it. I think it's also worth noting from this story that, that Jesus made eating together absolutely central to his mission and yet it was never in his home. Because he didn't have one. <laughs> right? There's not a lot of stories about Jesus cooking gourmet meals and his wife wasn't some up-and-coming Food Network star who could just put on a perfect party because he didn't have one. <laughs> Jesus made this central, and yet he didn't even have a home. I mean, where does this story have Jesus eating? It's at Matthew's house. When Jesus eats at Zacchaeus's house, where does he eat? At Zacchaeus' house, right? I'm coming to your house today. That's so what I'm saying is invite yourself over to the neighbors for dinner. <laughs> what a blessing. <laughs> no, of course not, but... I'm guessing if your neighborhood is anything like my neighborhood, that invitation has literally come to your door. We've lived in our house for 12 years, and there are a number of times that neighbors have come to our door and say, hey, you guys should come over for dinner, or hey, we're having a block party, or hey, we're just going to have a grill out tonight, and our schedule is too full, or we don't really like those neighbors, or we don't feel like having to bring a dish to pass, what if we don't like the food? There's all these reasons that we can come up with why we don't do it. How about you? I mean, when you're invited, do you go? This isn't just about us inviting neighbors into our home. Sometimes Christian hospitality is simply being prepared to accept the invitation that comes to you, being willing to go a little bit out of your comfort zone and risk that maybe the the potluck isn't going to be all that good in order to get to know your neighbors. When we started this series two weeks ago, we asked you all to write down the three to five names of people you're going to be praying for if you've been doing that, I would not be surprised at all if it's your coworker who comes to you and says, hey, want to get lunch? If it's your neighbor who shows up at your door and says, hey, we're having a thing Friday night, you guys want to come? That's, that's the way that God works. I'm not saying wait for that, but I'm saying that's what's the things that kind of start to happen when we actually bring God into this and say, give us the opportunities and the courage to act on them. I'm saying if Jesus was able to live this out without even owning a home, maybe there are places where we can live this out too. And I know there's tons of reasons that can make this difficult and uncomfortable, but I think it's worth pushing through our excuses, pushing outside of our comfort zones so that we can discover the mission that God has for our life of bringing more people to experience God with us. And eating can be a central way of of doing that. Let's not forget what's at stake here. (laughs) Helping God's accomplish God's ultimate mission for the world. And for some of you, if you take that challenge of missional eating, you'll find that you actually have spiritual gifts of hospitality that you didn't even recognize that you had. You didn't even know that you had. And it'll be a joy and a treat to be able to bless the world that way. here's, Here's the real question. If you knew if the only thing standing between a coworker of yours and internal life was you eating with them just once, would you do it? What if the only thing standing between your neighbor and a saving relationship with Christ was having them over for dinner and simply sharing your story? I think we would all do that. And yet I think we somehow live not even in, even in that reality, even seeing those stakes, or thinking that way. Chris said it, Kaylin said it, not making people projects, we are the project in this, but it's, it's having the heart that God has for people and seeing them the way that God sees them. And remember, you don't have to do this alone. I mean, one of the reasons we, we've started this small church thing, and one of the reasons why we've asked that they kind of be geographic is so that we actually have these enclaves, we have these little lighthouses in neighborhoods where you can do this Together, all of these blessing principles are so much more fun and so much easier and so much more rewarding and impactful if we do them together. What if your small church or your neighborhood or your friends started having barbecues or parties or dinners once a month and just inviting neighbors, coworkers to come over? No Bible study, just hanging out, eating food, talking, having fun, roasting s'mores. That could be someone's first taste of what group life looks like, of what authentic community looks like, of what church looks like looks like. That could be somebody's first experience of what God is like in the life that he's called us to. But I know it is. I mean, things sound good in here and inspiring in here and we're really committed to doing it. And then we go out and have a Mother's Day brunch and we forget all about it. So each week of this series, we've had an insert like this uh, of ways that, that hopefully you can help take next steps. I want you to take this out now if you would. On the front, it simply says eat together and it kind of reprises some of the things we've talked about today. But then on the back, it lists a bunch of creative ways that we can actually begin to live this out. It gives us some kind of prime-the-pump ideas, like have dinner together at your home or a restaurant, share a pizza, host a holiday party. National Night Out is a great chance to actually get to know some of our neighbors. And then on the bottom part, it says, bless brainstorm. Jot down ideas how you might schedule a meal or coffee with at least one of your three to five within the next few weeks. It's saying it's great that we wrote down these three to five names. It's great that we're praying for them. Now actually commit to ways that you're going to reach out to them and invite them simply to supper or, or, or to coffee or to have lunch or to sit at the same table in your lunchroom at school. Take the next step. So I to encourage all of us to do that. If even, if even half of us as a community started doing these simple missional practices on a regular basis where we live and where we work and where we go to school, I believe we would change The world. People who who have lost and broken lives would begin to experience restoration. People who are alone and lonely and broken would be able to experience real relationship. We would genuinely not simply know the truth but be able to demonstrate for them a life that is truly a blessing. May I, may you, take God's word to us today and let it take root in our souls. Let's eat our way. Into the kingdom. I'm in. (laughs) Let me pray. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your word and for the ways that it reveals to us who you are and how you want to interact with us and how you want us to interact with you, but also with the world around us. Thank you for food um, and the sometimes complicated relationship we have with it. God, I pray that you would take that thing that is so central to how we live and reorient it towards you and towards your kingdom and towards your values. Help us to see that we are so richly blessed by you. We have so much. And God, help us to have the courage and and the discipline to actually reorient our lives so that you can use those things to use us to bless this world. We ask it in the name of Jesus and for your glory. Amen.